What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. My name is Jared, and today I'm joined here by the smallest crew we've ever had for a Show Me the Meaning episode, because today with me is only one member of the Show Me the Meaning team, and it is Lux. What's up, Lux? Hey, dude. How's it going? It's going good. This was this strangely one of the hardest episodes to schedule. Originally, Ryan was supposed to be here, then he had to cancel, then we're going to do Bradless from our show Blackstage, and then he wasn't feeling well, so he had to cancel. The movie Midsummer is not out in Australia yet, so Austin couldn't do it. And then our producer Emily was going to join, and she got too nervous. So... <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's not the easiest movie in the world to talk about. Yeah, I guess. For sure. I don't know. I mean, that's, I say that, but I talk about this movie all the time, or I haven't since I saw it. Yeah. Because it's fucking good. But we're going to talk about Midsummer today, the 2019 film written and directed by Ari Aster, starring Florence Pugh, is it? And Jack Rayner. What is it? I think it's Pugh. All right, cool. As always, we're going to go around and get first impressions. What was it like watching it the first time you saw it? What was it like revisiting it for this podcast? Or since it's a relatively new movie, if you've only seen it once, tell me how you feel about it, Lux. Um, well, I saw it twice, and I loved it both times. Oh, cool. The first time I was really just like so fucked up by how good the cinematography and sound design was. Mm. Um, just like all the technical shit in the movie had me going nuts. So I had to see it again to like really appreciate a lot of the story and like theme stuff that was happening. Because the first time I was just like, oh, goodness, this movie looks incredible. It does look pretty awesome. Would you say better or worse than Hereditary? I think I like this movie better than Hereditary, actually, for a couple of reasons. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I just thought it looked cooler. And then, like, yeah, I mean, we'll probably get into some of the other deeper reasons about things about this movie that are cool. But there was some stuff I liked better than Hereditary in here, for sure. Yeah, I like this movie more than Hereditary. I love the shit out of this movie. I saw it about three weeks ago. I did not get to see it again, but I loved it. I, it was very haunting. It's a pretty long movie. What is it, like two hours and 40 minutes? Yeah, it's, and it's up there. I was pretty glued to my seat the whole time. I thought Florence Pugh was amazing. I think Jack Rayner or, I mean, he looks to me like like a young Star-Lord, but he's so hateable. Yeah, to my whole thing, he had this real evil Seth Rogen vibe that I really liked. I've seen people say that, but I to me, he's so much more Chris Pratt. Oh, I but thought his profile, when he shot in profile, he looks so much like Seth Rogen. Those performances, when it's just somebody who's so weaselly and hateable, I've recently grown like a real appreciation for being able to nail that tone of somebody that's so easy to hate. So I really actually appreciate his performance. But it's not one of those performances that he'll get a lot of love and respect for. Well, no, especially because like to hit that kind of tone, you have to make them weaselly in a way that's like, 50 plus percent relatable like you have to be shitty in a way where your audience can be like oh i could kind of imagine being shitty in that way it has um, to seem effortlessly shitty yeah and it's just to feel like like a little bit like the like the movie's kind of making fun of you or people you know like it has to feel real and not just yeah. like i'm a shitty guy but like i'm not trying to be shitty i just suck yeah uh, he <laughs> does an incredible job they all do like that's uh that's one of the things about the movie is that everyone's trying not to suck and they just suck because they're not great people they certainly aren't. All right, so we sound like we've got enthusiastic two of us for this movie, so let's go into a recap. So after losing her entire family in a horrific murder-suicide, grad student Danny joins her boyfriend Christian and his friends on a trip to rural Sweden where they will be joining exchange student Pella in studying and participating in the Midsummer Festival. Christian planned on breaking up with her before the tragedy and has been supporting her with the greatest reluctance. Upon arrival in Sweden, Danny and friends partake in psychedelics and are ushered into a series of bizarre ceremonies, the first of which ends with two elderly Swedes killing themselves in front of an audience. Deeply disturbed by this, some of Danny's friends decide to abruptly leave the festival, but Danny never sees them leave. They seemingly disappear without saying bye. After displays of bad behavior like sneaking pictures of a forbidden text and peeing on an ancestral tree, more of Danny's friends are abruptly disappeared. Danny wins a Maypole dancing competition and is dubbed the May Queen. Meanwhile, Christian is drugged and compelled to impregnate one of the Swedish girls in a very freaky ritual. Danny witnesses his infidelity and has a breakdown. Christian discovers that all of his disappeared friends have been murdered as part of a final act of sacrifice that closes out the festival. As the May Queen, Danny gets to decide who the final sacrifice will be, and she chooses Christian. As Christian and the other sacrifices burn, Danny smiles. End of movie. All right, guys, before we get into breaking down this freaky, freaky movie, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at Manscaped. 
So, Manscaped is the number one in men's below-the-belt grooming. So, Lux, have you ever asked yourself, with what device do I shave my balls? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's an obvious question that's going to come up eventually in your life, or probably everyone with balls. Especially if you're living on a budget and you can only get so many razors, do you reuse the one that you use on your face? I mean, you know, you can use soap and water on it, right? I mean, I've asked these questions in my life. Well, you don't have to ask these questions anymore with Manscaped because they uh, have this whole set that they sent us. They've even got, if you guys are watching the live stream, they've even got a nice little newspaper that says balls to the walls. It's a whole fake newspaper about manscaping. Uh, It's actually quite something. But it's all about not nicking yourself, making things safe, easy, and something that you do not have to do to both your face and your nether regions. So uh, you can get 20% off plus free shipping with the code WISECRACK at manscaped.com. Again, that's 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com. They've got an electric razor I've got right here. They have um, another razor that they sent. They've got all sorts of lotions and stuff. Anyway, again, guys, that's manscaped.com, code WISECRACK. Do your balls a favor and uh, get yourself some unique razors. All right, guys. So... Lux, I've got a hot take on this movie. All right. And considering some of the things that you and I have been talking about lately, I'm wondering if you have the same take. So should I just go for it? Yeah, go for it. I want to I wanna hear it. Okay. So specifically in the Tarantino video that you last wrote, you and I had been talking a lot about the value of ritual and kind of the lost value of ritual in the world. Yeah. And to me, this movie, and, and the, the key thing to remember here in this reading is that Danny smiles at the end. And I were meant to believe that I suppose she's staying with this new Swedish family and that she's going to continue to live. I mean, she doesn't have a family elsewhere. To me, this movie is about how the Western world has lost value in ritual and how we see it as some sort of spooky, irrational mysticism. So on the one hand, we have Danny, whose sister committed suicide. And although the details are unclear, I think we can assume she had a lack of support in dealing with her issues. Then, once the tragedy happens, Danny has the most unsympathetic, completely shitty support system in her boyfriend, Christian, who does terrible things like guilting her into taking drugs that will give her panic attacks and forgetting her birthday, and being seemingly more interested in his thesis than, you know, taking care of his girlfriend who has done undergone this horrible, horrible tragedy. She's completely on her own when she undergoes crying spells. He is a self-involved narcissist. On the other hand, we have the Midsummer Swedes that have a ritual form of dealing with pain as a community. And in two instances in the movie, we see when somebody is crying out in pain, the Mid-Sumerians or whatever you want to call them, they'll always mimic the crying. So the first time this happens is when the old man tries to throw himself off of the cliff and he hits the rock. Or he, I'm sorry, he misses the rock, and he's screaming in agony, and everyone else in partaking in the ritual screams with him. And then this happens again when Danny witnesses Christian cheating on her, and the other ten girls are screaming in unison with her, or they're mimicking her. They are, in a sense, sharing her pain. And this is why she smiles at the end, because in a perverse way, no matter how horrific the shit that we saw... Midsummer has given her a better alternative, a better support group, a kind of non-alienated existence that one would seek out, especially when you have no support group when dealing with the most horrific tragedy anybody can imagine. All right, that's my spiel. Am I am I right or wrong? No, okay. So I buy this to a pretty large degree, right? Like I think one okay. thing this movie does that I really like that relates to sort of where you're getting to at is Okay, actually, a good way to put this is, after the movie, I joked to my friend, uh, my friends who I saw it with, that I was very into the idea of a cult that harmonizes with everything, that's, like, always doing acapella harmonies of any noise that anyone does. Oh, um, okay. Because they're not just, it's not just when people, it's not just those instances, right? Like, during the scene where Christian is, like, has sex with the girl, like, the people are harmonizing along with the girl. Um, mm-hmm. It happens, like, in weird parts during, like when everyone's like eating or talking, like it happens in both like super sad or super happy context, like constantly throughout the movie, they're doing that kind of repeating thing. And I really like what that gets at and sort of how you put that, that it's like a communal dealing with a communal sharing of feeling. And that's what I think the movie does. That's so cool is so many horror movies are like quote unquote about trauma and quote unquote about dealing with trauma. But in those movies, trauma is just like 
your parents got eaten by zombies, but now you've killed some zombies, and I bet you feel a lot better, huh? Mm. And that sucks and is dumb and doesn't really have a lot to do with how trauma actually works. Like, it's not something that you get over by, like, punching. And this movie does, like, really show a, a strong value in, like, the communal, like, the way that community functions to help people cope with trauma. I do think that it also does complicate that a little bit because, like, the, the cult's not 100% chill, you oh, know? of course not. Like, that's, like, I think that's an important part of it, too, is that, like, I think you're right that it does show this, like, value of community as far as, like, a coping mechanism for trauma and a support system beyond, like, the traditional Western ones that we, like, have sort of isolated under, you know, modern, or within, like, the context of modern life. But then it also shows at the same time, like, how dangerous, like, choice and buy-in to these kind of rules can be, just in terms of, like, they murder all these people, which is pretty bad. Yeah, it's uh, pretty bad. And, like, the suicide thing is, is distressing, but actually, to me, kind of cool. But the murdering people thing is a bummer. And so it's... And that's part of why it's better than Hereditary, right? Because Hereditary had this feeling of, like, if you zoom out on, on the world of Hereditary, this kind of sense of, like, metaphysical inevitability. Like, there are these demons that exist, and they're going to get you. They're going to get someone. They're getting these guys. But someone's going to get got, that's for sure. And in this one, it's like, there was no metaphysical force that made anyone do this, right? Like, this was just some choices some people made. Right. And I think that's like, that's much spookier, especially like in the world we live in now. Like the like fe- like the way in which choice can become like perverse in this weird, dramatic and dangerous way is like very interesting and very spooky in a way that like you know, congenital demon possession is like not as much. So I guess I'm going to I'm going to go a little bit meta on on the point that you just made. So All right. Um don't you think just in the very premise that we are creating this movie that shows this Swedish ritual that has all these horrific things happening? I mean, you could say that the kind of the the self-imposed or the suicide thing is maybe less horrific, but of all the murdering and everything. And the fact that we're able to buy into this as sort of a we as the audience are buying into how scary that is, isn't that kind of more to the point of how we see ritual as a kind of thing that does, like, as you said, I, I guess, so you're right, obviously, that the festival does horrific things and that we are seeing the cons of buying into a horrific system of values that is perpetuated for hundreds of thousands of years or whatever that has you ultimately kill people. But on another level, isn't it also that just the fact that we buy into the horror conceit of this shows how we as a Western society or as a Western audience are so skeptical of said rituals. Am I making sense? No, no that does make a lot of sense. And actually, that, like, that makes a ton of sense because especially if you think about how, like, yeah, they they kill a bunch of people and that's a bummer and it's gross and weird and it's particularly visceral because, like, we're right there for it. It's on a very small scale, but, like, a lot of big scale, rational thinking, calculated choices of like politics or like culture, or whatever, have like killed a lot of people, like many, many more people than Midsummer has killed. Yeah. And so to sort of be like, there is something to what you're saying, sort of like our rejection of ritual. It's like almost unthinking because like a lot of the same weird propositions of how society works that we live in, like get people killed all the time. Um, just not like by having them like cut open and hung up in a chicken coop. Um, yeah, it's in different, more insidious ways. But I think you're right that it's like the knee jerk is like ritual. It's killing people. It's weird. It's creepy. But it's like, well, so does regular life if you like think about it. Right. Now, I don't necessarily think that the movie is necessarily a cry for more rituals in our lives. But I do think that one of the reasons why it's so effective. And, and by the way, I think two really interesting choices that kind of add to this reading is one. This could have been just a movie where just some goofy kids, some goofy teens get caught up in this midsummer ritual but no it's a woman who has gone through the worst tragedy someone can imagine your sister killing yourself and taking your mother and father with you and i think that that con like the fact that that is what she is dealing with and is able to find more uh comfort in these <laughs> these murderers basically than in her quote unquote support group or her boyfriend I think that it kind of begs us to ask those questions about whether or not wh- whether or not these rituals have a real practical value to them. Well, yeah, I think so. I think I guess 
I think we're agreeing on a lot of stuff. I think the big difference is I see this movie being more about trauma than ritual. Like the degree to what's about ritual is the degree to which ritual plays a part in sort of this movie's understanding of like ways of coping with trauma mm-hmm. rather than it being sort of the central theme of, of the deal. Cause you're totally right. Like there's a version of this movie that is totally fine. That is just like, we're all going to Sweden and like, uh Oh murders and Whoa, spooky time. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have the entire like 10 minute short film drama at the beginning. That is so, so good. Um, and super fucked up and sad that sets all this up and like positions them with this, like dealing with trauma and dealing with these like tense relationships. And that choice like makes her trauma and trauma in general, sort of the forefront idea of the movie. Um, and I think that definitely ritual plays a big part of that. But I think what the movie's most concerned about is like trauma, much in the same way, like is trauma and like experiencing it much in the same way hereditary was like more concerned about like mental illness than it was like Lovecrafty mm. and like spooky guys. Hmm. I'll only say one more point on this, and then I, I want to hear more about what you have to say about trauma. But I think it's relevant that the Americans are academics. It seems like yeah. kind of a strange choice because essentially they're teenagers or not teenagers. They're probably in their mid 20s or something like that. But usually when we think of these horror movies, it's like the clueless types who get sacrificed and killed. But I think that they have this perspective that they're studying this quote-unquote primitive ceremony, and it gives them this position of arrogance in a sense. I mean, we have the the guy from Bandersnatch. What's that actor's name, the guy who pees on the tree? Oh, God, I forget that guy's name. Um, I know William Jackson Harper is Josh. But yeah, he's but a I forget, perfect example. I forget the guy who plays Mark, but that guy, shouts out to that guy. That guy did a great job. Yeah, that guy's an awesome actor. Uh, but yeah, even the fact that he pees on their ancestral tree, and even once he's reprimanded for it, he doesn't get it he's like what i i didn't know it's just a tree it'll dry whatever i think and the fact that he is such a jerk when it comes to supporting danny and inviting her on the trip she has gone through an utter catastrophe and all he can think about is like is this gonna fuck up my game when i'm trying to bang all these swedish girls or whatever is this gonna mess up the bros trip and so it's not that Things happening in Midsummer aren't horrific. It's that Danny's sister, her sister's lack of community to help her through her pain and the ensuing fake performance of care towards Danny is, e- I don't want to say equally horrific, but also horrific. And the movie builds a really interesting uh, discrepancy between the two of them. You know, that I think I totally agree with, especially like you said, in the context of them being like in the quote unquote intellectuals, because like they should sort of they come from this like priv- like the sort of like privileged knowledgeable position of like what's going on and thinking they know better understand all this stuff but it's sort of clear yeah. from the very beginning that they don't really understand anything meaningful right because they can't do the basic human thing of uh, yeah, being getting, sympathetic yeah. when your friend has this fucked up thing happen to them right exactly so like the whole movie is about sort of how woefully unprepared these people who think they know everything is and i think that does go to like a how like our culture isn't great at dealing with trauma even when we're trying to and b like you said sort of how ritual or community play this bigger role that we sort of don't interact with directly in a lot of ways in our day-to-day life, which is, uh, for this movie, if not a bummer, at least a thing to think about. Did you feel any differently when it became clear that these kids were dying off? Because take a movie like Friday the 13th, when we have the teenagers being killed and usually they do things like they're drinking or they're having unprotected sex. And so we're able to kind of look at them and saying, oh, well, they're morally transgressing. Therefore, they kind of deserve what's coming to them, or at least there is a sense of catharsis when we see them murdered because we feel the sense of moral elevation. Did you feel something similar here? Because obviously with Christian at the end, I was not at all upset that that guy was going to burn alive. Um, yes and no. Um, I, so, okay, this is, this gets one of my, one of my core things about horror movies mm-hmm. is if you're making a horror movie, you got to make it so the people who are getting killed are people that I also like having on screen. Um, cause it's more, it's much more potent emotionally. If you're like scared for characters and not like rooting for them to get murdered. Mm. It's also, I think speaks to a weird part of our culture that we have a very popular subgenre of movies that is rooting for people to get murdered, <laughs> but that's a, a bigger conversation maybe. But, um, I like, wouldn't say I was rooting for these people to get murdered. Right, well, that's what I was going to say. That's why I think this movie works, is that while you're right, like, when Christian died, I was like, well, that seems to check out with everything else this movie has had to say about everything. I wasn't, like, hoping she would pick him, because I was also like, well, this guy's sort of trying his best. He's just a giant idiot. 
and I, I like that, that it had that balance. It, it had a sort of sense where, like, this speaks to the comedy of the movie, right? Like, the movie is funny as hell, <laughs> is an important thing to note. Like, this movie is super funny. And it's funny without characters doing shtick. Like, it's not, like, references and, like, witticisms and snark. It's like, it's like how the character Mark, we were just talking about Pete on the tree, like, he's just vaping all the time. And it's, like, super mm, out of place and yeah. weird. And, like, all the comedy comes from, like, bad timing or people not to suck, but instead sucking even more than you'd ever anticipated it being possible. Mm. And it's it's not shtick. It's, like, really natural character stuff. So I have, like, a greater degree of empathy for these characters. So I'm a little more worried for their safety. But at the same time, like, they do totally suck ass. And so I'm not furious when bad things happen to them. Which is, like, a nice place to be as an audience member. Because I, don't, I neither feel, like, complicit in a weird murder ritual, nor do I feel, like, uh, terrified for, like, my television friends. Mm. Um, yeah. You reminded me of, in my theater, people were laughing a lot at, the character's name is Mark. Yeah. The, yeah. When Mark is getting all, he's getting eyed from the girl, and he's like, was she, was she looking at me? And then when he gets eventually lured to her, which ultimately ends up killing him, people were laughing a lot at just his weird awkward attempt at game yeah no he's so fun well, that's the thing is like so much this movie is really funny because it is just like mark thinks he's a lot cooler than he is like josh thinks he's a lot more impressively intelligent than he is christian thinks he's a lot more like leading manny than he is pella seems fine but the other guys all like sort of think that they're more than they are and they're them falling them constantly falling short of like the image they try to project is like a, an extremely real kind of comedy because you see that in real life constantly all the time and also yeah. just a really effective one. And and it was one where, like, this is this is a testament of this movie, is that there was no point, there was only one part of this movie where I was, like, taken out of the movie about what was happening. And that's when, uh, when Christian drinks the menstrual blood potion at the dinner, and his drink is just, like, a radically different color than everyone else's drink. Mm. And I was just like, you gotta notice that your drink is just totally different. I know, but he's such a wiener. He's right. like, oh, I don't want to have a bad trip, and then five seconds later, he just downs it because he's a little bitch. I know, but you just you can't be sitting at a table and everyone's drink is yellow and yours is bright ass red, and you're just like, yeah, this seems normal. This seems he wanted, but he wanted to be manipulated. Oh yeah, them. totally. I'm saying that's like the one. What I was trying to say is that that's like the one thing in the movie that like took me out where I was like, this seems silly. But the rest yeah. of the time, even when they were doing all these jokes and things, where I was laughing at or reacting to. I was still like fully in the movie because none of it came from like referency bullshit or like sticky stuff or like tone changes or music cues. Like it was all just built out of the characters in the story in a way that felt really organic and good and made it easy to get to have a good time while also be like kind of terrified by the circumstances. Okay. I let's I want to talk about your ideas of trauma. You said you mostly read this film through the lens of trauma. I want to hear more about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, we can definitely, yeah. So, so the thing with this movie, right, is that it's what I like to call, um, or what I've been calling a big time dread movie. Like, it's sure. not a movie where, uh, Tony Collette crawls in the ceilings or things just burst into flames or like, there's like big screamy jump scares really, really at all. It's a movie where you get the feeling that something bad is going to happen or that bad things are happening. And that feeling just keeps mounting and mounting and mounting and mounting and mounting and mounting, and mounting throughout. And I really like this as sort of a way of thinking about trauma because the movie set, like the movie starts off, like we've talked about a bunch of times, like with Danny learning about her sister killing herself and her parents um, and then becoming very depressed about that for like obvious reasons. And the whole movie following it because we're mostly in Danny's perspective is about her going on this trip and stuff and still dealing with and processing all those emotions. And at the end, like Jared points out, like you said, Jared, there's... Uh, she smiles when she like sets Christian and all of her friends' corpses on fire, and and I also read that much like you did as like that's like she's bought into this thing, this like curative thing, um, and I think the sort of key to that is like Pele gives her this speech right where he's like, my parents died when I was a kid, I know what it's like, but I had this whole family, this whole support system, so I never felt like trapped or smothered by like the grief or pain or trauma of all of it, whereas you have like Christian and he sucks, <laughs> um, and so that's pretty bad, right? And so it really presents these alternative ways of dealing with trauma, like this very, like, atomized capitalism version of, like, you depend on this small support system and you don't really talk about it. And it's like trauma is a thing that you have for yourself um, and you reconcile with it versus this communal, like, we all share it together. Like, you know, I, made, I make the joke about this being the cult that harmonizes with everything, but, like, 
that's them sharing experience together. And like modern Western, like liberal democracy capitalism is very much about your experience is your own, mm. which is, you know, that has its own pluses and minuses or whatever. But one of the minuses is that we don't have the sort of like attempt to share pain or share feelings in the same kind of way. And because of that big, hard to explain feelings are really tough to like share and, and deal with. This movie sort of shows that there's like an alternative way of doing that. Um, and that trauma is something that can be processed communally, not individually. And then in doing that, like maybe that's healthier or better. Which I kind of do agree with. I don't, again, <laughs> condone the methods 100%, but like the thesis seems like relatively strong to me. Did you feel like there was a bit of fantasy that comes with this in that men who are watching the movie are attracted to the idea of being surrounded by a bunch of hot Swedish women who are all horned up and ready to mate? And I don't know, I'm wondering if, and we don't have any women on this podcast, but I wonder if women would similarly see a fantasy in the character of Pele, who, to your point, is endlessly nurturing and always speaking very romantically. Um, well, I can definitely uh, speak to the some women I know who I saw the movie with and I've, I've talked to on the internet have all agreed that Pele is like supremely hot and seems like he'd be a great boyfriend. Dreamboat. Yeah, absolutely dreamboat. So, I mean, I think you're not. there's not nothing there. And I also think that, like... This movie plays to a sort of, like, it's hard to say, like, gendered fantasy because I don't want to, like, paint pictures of specific gender perspectives. But, like, there's obviously in the way that, like, America presents culture, like, individual coping is a very masculinized thing. And, like, communal sitting around talking about our feelings is a very feminized thing. Um, And this is a movie that really, like, like, goes in on that second option in a real way as, like, that can actually be the foundational model for a community, not the other one. Which is very interesting and very cool, and I think is a reason why. I mean, I don't, you know, I can't speak to this universally, but at least within like my internet sphere, most of the people I've seen complain about this movie are uh, are mostly men, and most of the women I know have seen this movie think it's fantastic, and I think that there's something to that that huh. this movie challenges some normative, like, you know, like uh, like Andrea Dworkin levels of like ingrained, uh, you know, had or ingrained like masculine culture stuff, and like tweaks those things in a way that maybe isn't obvious if you're not really thinking about it. But I think it really does in a cool way because of this shit that I just said, basically. Yeah, to your point, when Pele first gets there, he immediately meets someone, I don't know if it's his dad or his uncle or something like that, but the way that they embrace each other, like they just are grabbing each other by the napes of their neck and just looking directly into each other's eyes. In a way, that's a kind of intimacy, whether between men or between women, either way that you just don't see these days. And it's probably the kind of intimacy that Danny needed but wasn't getting from Christian the shitbag. Right, totally. I mean, I'm <laughs> trying to – I want to say it's Adorno, but I could be wrong. But there's a, a number of Frankfurt School theorists and other people like that who talk about one of the big things that capitalism does is it atomizes the society, right? It makes us all – individuals operating rather than like conceiving of ourselves as a group. Um, Mm. And for various reasons, that's beneficial for the system, like no revolutions or like makes unionizing or whatever. But this idea of atomization is like a big part of what modern, like liberal democracy capitalism looks like. And I really like that this movie critiques that in a way that isn't just like, Oh, capitalism, it's going to get you like rich people. They're going to eat your bones or whatever. But it's actually like, this takes like a real, this has a real emotional cost. No, I really like the the complexity of it because, once again, as we've said, it's not the Western system that's killing people. Or, well, I mean, I mean, it's still a Western country, but it's not the it's it's the rural communitarian image that is doing the murdering. That is the source of all the horror. Well, maybe not all of the horror. But anyway, before we go on, guys, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at the University of Texas El Paso. So this one's personal to me because I was a student of the UT system. I went to UT Austin and uh, University of Texas of El Paso. Their goal is to make getting a degree reachable. So getting a degree can seem like an unreachable goal, especially if you have a job, kids or other family obligations. Uh, Maybe you don't have time. Maybe you don't have the money to go back to school. But University of Texas El Paso is part of the country's largest university system, and they have a suite of full, fully online degree programs known as UTEP Connect, that's University of Texas El Paso Connect, that is made to make it so that you can remove as many barriers as possible when you get a degree. They're flexible and convenient, accessible from anywhere, affordable with one of the lowest tuition rates within the UT system, 
which is saying something because I went through the UT system and didn't pay much. Uh, it's the same that you would get on campus with the same great content and professors. So go to utepconnect.utep.edu or call UTEP Connect at 1-800-684-UTEP today for more information. Again, that's utepconnect.utep.edu or 1-800-684-UTEP today. And now back to the show. All right, Lux. Uh, I wanted to go into a little bit of a just minor details about the actual Midsummer Festival. I'm sure that most people know that it's not actually like this. Uh, do you know much about the real Midsummer Festival? No, I actually, I, I'm shamefully minimal about this. I should look that up and it even occurred to me to be like, oh, this is probably a real thing. Well, it is a real thing, but it was initially a pagan festival ushering in summer as the longest day of the year. I mean, it is very old. But then after Catholicism became the dominant religion, it became a celebration of the birth of John the Baptist. Today, it's mostly about nature and light, and it really is just seemingly a excuse for people in Sweden to get together, run around outside, play some silly games like they have one game. Uh, well, first of all, the Maypole dance is real. They don't take psychedelics, as far as I was able to tell, but they'll play games like putting a stick uh, or like a uh, Putting a stick against your head and then like running around in circles until you get too dizzy and then fall down. Um, so the maypole thing is real. Flowers are also similarly a key aesthetic. Women wear flowers, even put flowers under their pillows so that they'll dream of their future husband. So Ari Aster kind of played with that and made it. What is it like some sort of wooden icon that she puts under yeah. Christian's bed? She carves like a rune on a stick and puts it under his bed. Yeah, so he played around with that a little bit. But yeah, Midsummer's a real thing. Uh, you know, in the movie, they said that it was every 90 years they do some sort of legit Midsummer festival. And I wasn't able to find anything about that. But if anyone is Swedish and is listening, please send us an email, movies at wisecrack.co, for uh, any other things that Aster might have adapted from the actual festival. Yeah, I also did like with that. I mean, I don't know if this is adapted from real life or not, but it's one thing I liked is that there were, like, little drops of festival backstory that, like, hinted at, like, a spooky, um, like, world before the world of men kind of thing. Um, yeah, like, I love the production design, all those painted backgrounds of, you know, the women, like, shaving their pubes. Yeah, or, like, and... the bear. Um or with the I'm now th I'm now thinking I should have used that to transition into the Manscaped dad, but totally lost me on that. But um, yeah, the bear thing for sure. I like I really like before the Maypole dance. They talked about how like it was it's a celebration of like this battle against like the dark old ones, but they fought till they all fell down, and now they all fell down because from dancing and not from dying. Mm. And it's like a fuck you to the great old ones or whatever, like. I uh, I love that shit, and I liked. Like, this is part of my problem with Hereditary, right? Was that um, and I might have talked to you about this. I don't think on the podcast or something in regular life that like it was so cool when I didn't really know what the cult was about in Hereditary, mm. and then at the end yeah. they're like, "Here's our deal: we're naked and we're weird, and we got a demon." And it's like, "What? Well, okay, like hail Paymon." Yeah, but that's like that's not you know that doesn't feel it, it like loses so much of its impact or lost much of its impact for me at the end. It just felt like a million other things I'd seen. And I think this movie did a really good job of cultivating a sense of mystery that even by the end of the movie, like a lot of the questions aren't really answered, answered. But the story is, is tied up in a satisfying way, despite the fact there's still like questions left. Yeah. Which I really liked. Can we talk about the technical shit in this movie for a second? Yeah, please. Because um, it's crazy. There's So there's a shot in a lot of horror movies that I think is a pretty classic one where there's the car driving down the street and the camera rotates over the top of it so it flips upside down. Don't they even have that in Hereditary? I think these are in Hereditary. These are a lot of things. It's sort of always like that. We're passing from like one zone to the next zone kind of imagery. Mm -hmm. um, what I loved in this movie is that then they cut to the same perspective but reversed. Or like to the to the reverse angle but kept it upside down and then wheeled the thing back over the car again. Um, like you did like a full 360 using these like blend cuts. And, like, that was fucking gorgeous. And it set this, like, tone of all of these times where the movie uses, like, it pans to the left and then blends into a movement that goes back to the right and time has passed or we're somewhere else. And it used that in a really cool way, especially when contrasted with how it showed gore, which was, like, almost always just, like, a hard cut to something super gross. Mm -hmm. um, which I fucking loved. Like, 
There were yeah, times one, they would. Ari Aster has a real gift for getting you into a sense of security and then just fucking you up tremendously. One example in this movie being like after the the old people jump off the cliff and die, um, everyone's talking about it and you know dealing with it, and then the next cut is like a hard cut to their dead bodies all gored up being cremated. Um, mm. And it's like cut from the, all these sad people being like, "This is crazy." To like, "Oh, corpses," and you've no, you've no reason to expect corpses in that moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just such a good job of like, freaking you out, not with threats of a spooky thing around the corner, but just like reminding you like what's happening right now. To your first point about the camera doing interesting upside down inverted things, one of my favorites is when before they go on the trip, we see Danny. She's about to have a panic attack. This is when Pele first tries to console her and say, hey, I've been there. I'm really sorry about what you've been through. And then she starts to have this panic attack and she runs to the bathroom and it's an overhead shot. And as she nears the bathroom in the overhead shot, she closes the door and then we're in the plane and they're already on their way to Sweden. And not only is it super disorienting and kind of giving us that subjectivity of somebody who's dealing with something as fucked up as she is. But also, I just love how it communicates the passage of time and specifically that she hasn't gotten any better. Things have not gotten better. She's still going on this trip in a very, very deranged mental state and that Christian has not helped her. Right. The time has passed, but she's in the same place. Yeah. Um, And that rules. It's the movie just so fucking good at all these little all these little visual tricks. Yeah. That I just like it's constantly doing these things where like it's tricking you with location and the other thing that was always so impressive about this movie is it's like the only drugs movie that like feels like the people who made it have done drugs because mm. like usually in movies it'll be like someone takes some kind of weird drug and then it's like everything's neon colors and it's swirly and now the animals are talking and what's going on a little bit of swirly stuff here. A little bit, yeah, but it was all sort of subtle like it was just like flowers like breathing or like opening and closing in a way that doesn't make sense or like body parts blending into the ground or like the ground blending into the sky or all these like weird perceptual things. But it felt like much less it, it worked to do this thing where like, it wasn't that the tripping out was like these crazy visuals. It was like, everything seems weird. And the weird behavior started to feel more normal, which is much more like, you know, in line with, with drug things as they exist in real life. Like it's not that everything seems crazy. It's that things are weird, but that seems normal. Um, and the movie achieves that in a much realer way than like, I don't know, uh, altered states or something like that. I fucking love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, altered states is good, but it's definitely like a goofy drugs movie. Oh yeah, for sure. You mentioned earlier, you were talking about hereditary and you were talking about the end cult scene and how the end of the movie is hail Paimon, hail Paimon, which is definitely reminiscent of the end of Rosemary's baby spoiler alert where it's hail Satan, hail Satan. But have you ever seen The Wicker Man? Oh, yeah. Both versions. Okay. So I have only seen the Nicolas Cage one, and I admit that I only saw it because I wanted to see him scream, Ah, the bees, the bees. So somebody told me that this movie, not only visually, but also in terms of plot, reminded them of Wicker Man a lot. Did that happen for you? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's definitely, it follows a similar structure of, like, the cult movie, right? Like, cult horror exists i think there's something that we were kind of that you and i were both kind of talking around earlier in the, in the show like cold horror exists because it's like what if all the rules that we think make all the rules that we have that make life make sense didn't exist and there were different rules and wouldn't that be scary and weird mm-hmm. um especially if all these people accept these like other rules as just being natural and normal isn't that fucking wild mm-hmm. um and that's like what the wicker man is too i don't think it Maybe I'm misremembering it, but I think The Wicker Man has a much less, like, maybe this is okay vibe at the end. Mm. I think the end of The Wicker Man is pretty, like, these people just burned that guy. Spoilers. Um, And so, but it does, it is very similar in the sense that, like, it's a lot of, like, stuff that seems okay, but you feel weird about it because it's a little bit off. And then it's, like, increasingly off. And then it's like, oh, murders are happening. Um, and it it does have that in common, but I think cold horror in general kind of has that. I think that's part of why this sort of like, or folk horror, I guess is a better way to put it. Like folk horror has that kind of energy to it. And I think that's really good and compelling. This idea of like, what's scary about it isn't any, isn't like a group of old Swedish people. 
It's that a group of old Swedish people have all decided that this is how society works and they've all agreed and everyone's okay with it. Um, and like that's spooky to think about because like, you know. Yeah, but uh, so during that one part in the movie where they describe, I don't remember exactly what the line is, but it's something like seven years of learning, then you work from age blank to blank and then you only and then you study from ages blank to blank and then you die. Did that not speak to you at all? Were you just kind of like, damn, I could I could get down with that. No, I liked that. I liked yeah. that whole thing of like you're you're like a kid until you're like seven, and then from seven to eighteen you work, then eighteen to thirty six you go out in the world, and thirty six and to fifty four you come back and you're part of everything, and you help raise the next generation, and then from fifty four to seventy two you're old, and then you die. Mm. <laughs> um, and like yeah, there's an appeal to that. Not even for like Malthusian reasons, because Malthus is wrong and uh, for overpopulation is not whatever. We can get to that later. But what's interesting about it is that like it it does sort of one another thing of like just the world, like the post enlightenment world we live in, is like this idea that being alive is inherently good, mm-hmm. which is a thing that I controversially don't agree with. <laughs> um, I think that being alive is a neutral well, then, is see- a value neutral proposition. <laughs> Well, then, I guess the cultists weren't doing anything terribly wrong when well, they killed all those people. Yeah, at least not all the people. Uh, you know, <laughs> it varies. It's a case by, like I said, it's a value-neutral proposition. It's a case-by-case kind of thing. But I think that they're making that that assertion, right? That, like, being alive doesn't really have value in and of itself. It's what you do with those times where you are alive that, like, ascribe value to the act of life. Mm-hmm. And they're like, so you get your 72 years, and it's broken up into these sections, and you do your thing. And that's how, like, your life provides value. But being alive in and of itself, like being 80 and decrepit in Sweden in a place that has no, like, electricity. And, like, yeah, I mean, maybe it's dead. you should be dead. You know, Schopenhauer agrees. It, that's just sort of the I – th- I think there's value to that perspective. Again, you know, there's also – it's a bummer. But it does, I think – it did resonate with me in that way. And it's like, yeah, the value of being alive past 72 is, like, a real mutable question. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention that – is interesting about how in Hereditary there was much more of a distinct source in this devil figure. So apparently, and I read this on the internet, so the the town or the commune is called Harga, and it was chosen because it has an association with a real Swedish legend known as, and I'm going to butcher this, the Harglaten. Basically, the devil arrives in Harga, disguises a fiddler, and tricks the young locals into dancing themselves to death. And I found it interesting that he chose to place it in within a community that has this folk devil figure, but not really bind any of the horror in any kind of supernatural devil-like elements. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, this goes to the same thing that I've been harping on, like, People being weird is way spookier than magic being weird mm. because magic's weird. Yeah. That's, the, that's what the whole fucking point of magic is that it's weird. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, like obviously there's 10, but like, okay, like a good example is like that movie Crawl with the alligators. I just saw that Didn't movie see Crawl. It. How was it? It was, I loved it. Okay. It was dumb as shit, but I had a great time. Um, it had, did you see Gerald's game? I have not. Okay. It's Gerald's game is a very gross scene and crawl has like a ton of versions of that exact same sequence. It's weird, but very good. But the point is that like, that wasn't scary, right? It's like tense because you're like, these are alligators, but it's not scary because like alligators eat shit. Like it's not abnormal or weird. It's just intense and, and you know, it's just tense. Mm-hmm. And this is much scarier to me because this feels like a possible thing. Of just people being crazy, as opposed to like you know, so like or hereditary. It's like, you know, uh, demons are going to try and possess people. It's what they do. Yeah, it's normal, and it's like the spook. The less I know about those demons, the more effective it is for me because at least then I'm like scared by the unknown. Mm. But, but hereditary botches that job too because it tells you the whole fucking thing at the end. And so I think that this movie does a great job. I'm also, to be fair, much more partial to these dread movies than. Um, uh, than like a jump scare movie. And I think that this kind of idea of like the setting itself, the possibility of the movie uh, itself is scary, is more appealing to me than like the specific situation. Mm-hmm. But this movie, like, yeah, I just love this movie really achieved that in a really good way. And like you said, like it's, I don't need it. Yeah. I just, people are scarier than basically everything. 
mm-hmm. um, except for clowns. <laughs> and most clowns are people. And so this movie does like for me it was really effective in that particular way. Like in that way of just like, oh, ugh, I'm very uncomfortable right now and I'm a little afraid. Yeah. It was a solid two and a half hours of being uncomfortable. That was very enjoyable for me. Uh, do you have anything else that you want to add? Um, what else was in this movie that was very, very cool? Um Yeah, the one one thing I really enjoyed about this movie also was this idea like I just loved, I I mean, everyone's been talking about this shit, but I fucking love that it was just, like, the brightest, most colorful fucking thing. Oh, yeah. The sunniest horror movie ever didn't have to rely on darkness. Yeah, because it was, again, like, it wasn't relying on, like, things hiding the shadows. It was just relying on you, like, making a scary situation in your own head. If you want in on that, like, you can just do it. Like, that's just going to happen no matter the setting. And so, Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's basically my main thing. I just thought, I just thought it was so fucking impressive. Like, it's an ambitious fucking movie to make. To make, like, a cult horror, folk horror movie that's also a breakup movie that's, like, also stylistically distinct from, like, every other horror movie I've ever seen. And it all took place, or most of it took place in a field. I imagine it was also very cheap to make, which is amazing. I mean, that's the only way that movies like this continue to get made. So, hats off to Ari Aster. I was not entirely sold on you being an amazing auteur after Hereditary, but now I'm sold. Yeah, totally. Also, do you know the origin story of this movie getting made? He said something that he had a it was a breakup that caused this, right? Well, it was that he got an offer to write just like the Swedish horror movie. Um, and he was like, this sucks and is boring. Um, but I was just going through this terrible breakup and I want to write about that. So I'm going to write about both these movies at the same time together. And then this movie happened. Is there one side of the breakup that he more identified with? Did he break up with somebody who underwent something tragic? Did he go through something tragic? Or is that all just created? Um, my my thing is, my understanding is that he was sort of the Danny of the story. I don't think he went through anything nearly as bad as that. Mm-hmm. But that, like he was in a bad place and that he was sort of the one who was sort of suffered for the whole dynamic. Um, as I understand it. Which like... You can tell in the movie because it's all played. It's all very. It all feels very real, and it's just like that's such a crazy way to make a movie. But then they just did it. Also, it's crazy that movie's all shot in Hungary. I did not know until recently. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah, yeah. I bet you his ex girlfriend or ex boyfriend, whatever, is probably not happy to see him, 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 him or herself embodied in Christian, the biggest cheese dick character of the year. Yeah, but the only thing that Christian and his <laughs> friends is like, it was a little bit. That was a real. Uh, I feel per- I feel personally targeted by this relatable content uh, moments with that. And just in the sense of like, the, I mean, the Wisecrack staff is like all like grad students or, or post-grad people for the most part are like, uh, like intellectuals of some type. And there is definitely like, none of us are nearly so shitty, but there was a shared type of shitty DNA um, across oh, yeah. that movie that like I found both, which made it much funnier to me in a lot of ways, but also made me be like, Oh, I gotta be a better guy, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that. All right, guys. Uh, one more shout out. I want to give out to uh, another podcast this week in movies. So if you guys listen to this podcast, you'll notice that one thing we don't do is we don't do up to date movie news, but you can get that at this week at movies. Uh, if you enjoy discussion of themes, wonder which movies you want to see and which you should skip what's coming out this weekend you can stay in the loop with this week in movies podcast or twim for short fresh reviews analysis insights from the latest movies they won't spoil any of these movies without first giving you a warning unlike us because you know that we'll spoil stuff if you're clicking on it so it's a weekly podcast you can subscribe now on your podcast platform of choice and without further ado we're going to go into the mailbag so you guys can send us an email at movies at wisecrack.co. But first, we're going to go into our voicemails at 213-534-8807 or 21ElfGut07. We actually got a voicemail from Dave about Midsummer. So let's hear what Dave has to say. Hey, this is Barry from Maryland. I'm just calling about the ending of Midsummer. Uh, I just wanted to talk about the how Danny's uh, aspect was completely destroyed with that sacrificial fire. Like how Christian represents Danny's aloofness and lack of initiative with herself, Danny, which is why Christian doesn't have that initiative either. And Josh represents like Danny's possible obsession that she can have to the point where she ignores 
boundary lines and stuff, which would get somebody, you know, in trouble. And Mark represents Danny's naivety, or or one could view it as foolishness, while he was poolside. And the two pair and the two sets of couples. I, I think the younger couple represents Danny's current relationship with Christian, so that's why that has to be destroyed as well. And uh, the older couple represents their possible future relationship that they can have, because especially because you see that they're not really happy uh, throughout the entire movie. The older couple, so this could be a possible future for Danny to have that she's not going to be happy with Christian if she continues this. So um, I feel like when the firefly burns these bodies, she's trying to destroy the negative aspects of herself in order to better herself. Because this is the first time I believe you could, you ever actually see Danny truly smiling and is happy and is finally getting rid of this negative weight that she has upon her. Um, let me know what you guys think. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right, Dave. So I really like what he said about it being a indication of Danny going from inactive to active, because I do like the idea that she should have dropped Christian in her life before she should have seen the signs of him not being supportive enough of him being a shitty boyfriend and dropped him. And it's perhaps poetic that ultimately she does it by burning him alive. But I don't know if I agree. So Lux, the older couple that he's talking about, is he talking about the couple that jumps off the cliff? I mean, I think so, right? I think it's the only older couple, right? Because the other couple is like, Simon and um, what's her name? Uh, but they're the same age and they're just British is their thing. Well, I think that for the most part, one of the reasons why I kind of stick by my initial hot take reading is because none of the people that are part of the Midsummer community show any kind of angst or despair or anything. They all seem actually quite happy. I'm curious as to why he thinks that they were unhappy. Yeah, I mean, that's that I don't get, because I think the movie makes a big point of the fact that they're fine with it. Mm. Like, the movie makes a big point of the fact that, like, there's the whole thing, right, where the guys are freaking out after, the, after they jump off the cliff, and that lady's like, you have to understand, like, we all think this is good and cool. Right. Um, And so that part I do kind of disagree with. I do like his take that, like, it's like, it ties into the trauma thing, right? It's that, like, sure, Danny probably should have broken up with Christian at some point, but you can't really blame her when her life gets, like, thrown into utter chaos. And he's, like, the one thing that has, that like, she has an anchor to. Sure. Um, but then, like, the moment she can sort of get past that is the moment that she's, like, coped with her trauma. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, that allows her to, like, take back her agency or, or whatever. Um, and I do like that element of, of his question. And I like the idea that these characters she's with kind of represent sort of problems that she has with herself that she needs to grow through. I don't think it's, like, necessarily one-to-one, but I do think there's some juice to this, just the idea that, like, this process allows her to become a more fully actualized person and that that's part of the arc of the movie. Um, I think that's like a pretty reasonable claim. Absolutely. Lux, have you seen Spider-Man Far From Home? Oh, yeah. All right, cool. We got a call from Anonymous about Spider-Man. Go Anonymous. Hello. Wisecrack, and the Avenger here, and I was calling in response to your Spider-Man Homecoming podcast. Now, I was very interested when I saw it as the illusions that Mysterio uses, almost as if it's a meta-commentary on the illusions of movies and how we put our trust in trust in them and that we believe the illusions. So I was just wondering what you guys thought about that with how we put our trust in movies and everything in the illusions of the, inter- of the entertainment industry. Thank you. I don't know what he means by that. I mean, it, we obviously know that these special effects are fake. I don't think the movie is making the point that if you find comfort or any kind of existential reassurance in superhero movies, you ought not to. I don't think the movie's making that claim at all. What do you think, Lux? No, I kind of agree. I think that this take is strong. This take, uh, like many, is stronger if you push it further. I think that it's less about like this is an indictment of the movie industry, but it's an indictment of like the sort of self-narrativization and narrativization of the world, right? Like, it's all Spider-Man fighting illusions and, like, mysteries, whatever. Because, like, you know, the world... Like, we tell ourselves a story about how the world works and how things go, and they're never true or right. And, like, like the whole movie is Spider-Man telling himself the story that he can just be a normal high school kid. That, like, his superhero-ness doesn't matter. It doesn't, like, make him part of this bigger thing. Mm, um, like and he's that. trying to trick himself in that way. And so, of course, like Mysterio is using tricks and illusions because like it's all about Spider-Man's perception and like inability to see like the truth of the world. Oh, I really like that. I like how saying that the fact that he thinks he can 
have great power without great responsibility is an illusion that Mysterio puts on him. I like that a lot. Yeah, well, I think I think that that is, and it's an experience one that he signs up for, and then like that's, and so I think it's making like a bigger claim than just like movies are trying to trick you because like yeah, we're all getting signed up to be tricked by movies. It's that we trick ourselves and the world tricks us and then a big part of like growing into like the fully formed version of yourself is trying to learn the difference mm. um and that's why i like that movie a lot um not as much yeah. as the first one but i still liked it a lot yeah all right we're going to move on to the emails once again guys if you want to give us a call 213-534-8807 or 21elfgut07 uh, I imagine, Lux, you've seen Blade Runner, yes? Yes. Okay. So we got a... Oh, so yeah, if you want to send us an email, it's movies at wisecrack.co, not .com. So we got this email from Radic. He said, I was very excited to hear your podcast about Blade Runner recently, especially with such a strong roster of cinema buffs. I agree with what you said about having to ask the human replicant question is the whole point and not being able to answer it. All the more disappointed I was to hear that most of you thought that the above question was answered in 2049. I feel, and I hope a lot of people agree, that the whole reason why the sequel works so great is that it doesn't answer the question if Deckard is a replicant or a human. I understand that some part of the audience will be hung on the argument that Deckard lived long, so he was definitely a human. The age limit on replicants was stated to be artificial, and there wasn't much stopping from designing replicants without this limitation. Also, Wallace was suggesting in his conversation with Deckard that he was designed to fall in love with Rachel and that he might be a replicant. We don't know if it was to mess with Deckard's head or actually true. It doesn't matter. The strong points of the movie were that it expanded on the questions of humanity by introducing a third category, human AI, represented by Joy and showing off Kay or Joe as the most hopeful and human character we meet. So thank you for writing in. I need to see Blade Runner 2049 again. I've only seen it once in theaters. I don't remember a lot of it. Do you remember 2049 well, Lux? Yeah, and there's one detail in particular that makes me think that this take doesn't make sense because isn't a big part of the movie, like a big part of the sort of central issue of the movie, that there are people who can exist whose parents are both a human and a replicant, right? Isn't, I don't, isn't I that a central contention? I, I remember of like there being. This, like, I remember Ryan Gosling. I remember the girlfriend, digital girlfriend. I remember there being a lot of baptismal water and Jared Leto being creepy. Jared Leto in that movie is a fucking crime. Um, <laughs> I hated that performance. Um, but yeah, I I think that if I remember correctly, I believe that part of it is that like the the magical the magical MacGuffin girl is Harrison Ford's daughter, right? Oh, is it? I, I believe See, that's I, I believe that's oh, yeah, the case. She's like, and that a big okay. thing is that, like, it's Harrison Ford and Rachel, the replicant's daughter. And if the thing is that two replicants can make another replicant, that's much less, feels like much less pressing to me. Mm. Um, so I'm pretty sure. But yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that movie. I mostly remember how good that movie is at tilting the camera up the sides of very pointy buildings. Mm. But if I remember correctly, that doesn't quite hold up. And it also doesn't, like, the, it, the, the, the message's point to me seemed to be about how, like, Caring about this distinction de takes some of the interest away from like this third category. But I think the whole point is not that we should care about the third category so much as we should care about how the existence of the third category complicates the other two. Mm. Well, all I can say, Radic, is that I don't want to say anything if I haven't recently watched the movie with it fresh in my mind. So I will watch it at some point and we will definitely do 2049. And hopefully I will be able to better answer your question. Uh, we got a really interesting reading from Paulo. He said, I'm writing regarding the unicorn sequence and why it matters on the case that Deckard is a replicant debate, although in the end it doesn't really matter to the enjoyment of the movie. On the film, every replicant is paired with an animal. Zora, snake. Roy, dove. Rachel, owl. Leo, lion. Pris, raccoon, because of her crazy makeup at the end. And Deckard is paired with a unicorn, which is not a real animal, but a fantasy one. In my interpretation, this is done to show not only that Deckard is a replicant, but also a special one that may have a longer expiration time, which would explain him being on this, on this, oh, I think he means on the sequel. There are also other suggestions to this point, like his abnormal strength, like hanging on a ledge with broken fingers, that's a good point, and stamina, and the scene where he is shown with big bright eyes, from Paolo. I had never heard this thing about the animals, but... Zora Snake, obviously. Roy has the dove at the end. Rachel, there's an owl in uh, Tyrell's office. Leo Lion, which... Oh, Leon. Wait, why Leon and the Lion? I mean, if nothing else, the, the etymology the is, is right there. Okay. 
Pris the raccoon, absolutely. The makeup in the eyes definitely makes her look like a raccoon. I like this reading. What do you think, Lux? Yeah, I think it's cool. I mean, part of it is maybe this is just part of how I spent the last year on the Game of Thrones grind for for us. But man, these like hyper specific text reading conspiracy things drive me fucking insane. <laughs> at this point i think this is a good one this is one of the more interesting ones i've heard about anything in a very game long of thrones time. is over man it, it doesn't even matter man clear your head of that shit yeah but it's it's just that i think this one's very good i think that again it's um it's more important that this conversation exists right and things like this are good for that um because again like the movie and the book and i'm always going to sort of harken back to phil k dick because phil k dick's very important to me always seem to sort of be like mostly interested in like complicating the things that we assume about identity categories rather than like inventing new ones or like teasing out what it means to be a robot. It's like more about mm-hmm. like w- what's the line of where human starts and ends. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And stuff like this, I think is these debates all really strengthen that discussion. I think that's like the most interesting thing about the movie. Sure. All right, Lux, I'll leave it to you. You want more Spider-Man or more Blade Runner? Um, let's do Spider-Man, because I, I saw that movie much more recently than I've seen the Blade Runner movie. Sure. Hey, Wisecrack, my name is Tamia, and I've been listening to the podcast for a while now, and I really appreciate your takes on all these films. I recently saw Far From Home, and I want to address this scene that really was obvious to me, but everyone else seemed to ignore. Remember in the bar when Peter gave Quentin Edith? He did so by speaking into the pair of glasses, giving Mysterio access. However, at the end of the film, Peter manages to take Edith from Mysterio, tells Edith to destroy the Jones without Quentin giving access back to him. Can you explain this? How did Peter use Edith without gaining back access? You know what, Tamia? I thought the same thing, but then I said to myself, oh, you know what? Probably doesn't matter. But I did think about this, but I guess we just have to conclude that when you grant access to someone else, it doesn't preclude you from maintaining access. Yeah, I mean, I think here, here's my in-fiction comic book explanation for this. So the glasses had to recognize Peter in order to start working in the first place. They had some kind of like biometric connection. So Peter can provide other people access, but the the factory standard on the Edith is that it like clicks into Peter's genes or whatever, or some biometric. So like, Mm. even if he gives permission over to Quentin, once he gets it back and has it in his hands, the thing will respond to him because it's programmed to respond to his biometrics always. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's true. That was, that that's was good. My, that was good. That's my comic book explanation. I think that. All right, this one's from Zane. I think you're going to like this one, Lux. Watching, so this is from Zane. Zane says, watching Far From Home made me overthink details that might seem subliminal. For example, Spider-Man's iconic blue and red suit is swapped out for a new black and red suit. The original reason for the blue and red was for patriotic reasons that Peter took from his idolization of Captain America, which was later retconned to Peter taking the colors from the radioactive spider. The switch from blue to black may have similar political slash nationalistic motivations that give the that given the highly politicized climate of Europe at the moment and their distaste for Americanization in this sense. Am I going crazy? What do you think? I would say, I mean... Yeah, probably going crazy, simply because I don't think Marvel's not in the business of casting shade on any countries, especially America, where the movies are made. What yeah, do you think, especially where American movies are made and America, which low-key pays for some of their movies. Right. Um, yeah. I, mean, I didn't fully understand. What's the color change thing he's talking about with regards to Europe? He says the switch from blue to black may have similar political nationalistic motivations given the highly politicized climate of Europe at the moment. I think he's just saying that basically Spider-Man doesn't look like a America fuck yeah symbol at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. Um I don't know. I think that would be cool, right? Cuz black and red coding is all anarchist leftist stuff which I'm very into. I just I I doubt it. That would be like saying that Darth Maul is into that shit, which I highly doubt. Yeah. Zane, good thinking, but I'm going to say probably impossible. All right, let's do this last one. This is from Josh. Josh says, hey, crackheads, have you ever been called that? We have. My name is Josh. I'm from Australia and love the podcast. In regards to Far From Home and the Blip, I'm surprised none of you mentioned Martin Starr's character's wife who pretended to be blipped so she could run away with another man. I wouldn't be surprised if more people did things like this. The ultimate time to escape your debts, too. Also, is Tony Stark the ultimate Marvel villain? He basically created all the villains in his films, Spider-Man films, Ultron, and it's said that him coming out 
as a superhero inspired the desire to challenge, making Earth a magnet for conflict. Just some thought. I think that one of the things that's great about Far From Home is that it definitely introduced or reintroduced some nuance to the consequences of Tony's actions. And that was really welcomed and that was really refreshing and that was really interesting. I don't know if I would go as far as to say that he's the ultimate Marvel villain. He's still a, I mean, in terms of the IP sense, he's still a hero. But I like the idea of painting us heroes and then encouraging the audience to analyze their legacies critically. Yeah, well, Mar- well, yeah, Marvel, Marvel plays a cool trick that I gotta say I'm, I'm a fan of in a way, and also frustrated by another, which is it constantly makes movies that complicate the value of superheroes as an idea, and then spends a lot of time being like, "But actually, they're good for sure. Don't worry." Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I think that's just what this, what this question is getting at. Like, yeah, like Tony Stark accidentally made Ultron. Tony Stark. Does the fucking Iron Man 3 fucking whatever it's called superpower juice plot like ends up triggering a bunch of bad shit in the again the uh, Infinity Stone movies. But like all in all, like Thanos was going to be Thanosing around in space regardless. Right. The Kree are going to be creating it up no matter what. Like all this shit is happening and whether or not Iron Man exists or not, like that shit still matters. And so without Iron Man, everyone dies. Right. Mm. At the end of the day, if you zoom out far enough. The problem, the thing what he's getting at that is true is that, like, this great man theory that Marvel likes to have, they're implicating themselves in in the sense of, like, yeah, Tony Stark does all these things to help people, but because of that and because he's so driven to be the one who does the thing, he has unexpected outcomes that are also bad. Um, so we got to think about it, which is fair, but they ultimately clearly come down the side of, like, but it's overall good. Of course it's good. They got to make more movies, man. Yeah. All right. We're going to go and wrap it up. Uh, Thank you guys for writing in. Thank you guys for listening. want to remind everybody that uh, we've got a new podcast out called Culture Binge. That's where me, Alec, who's been on the podcast a couple couple times, and a newcomer named Serby are going to be breaking down random shit that happens in the zeitgeist every week, trying to subject it to analysis like we often do. Uh, I want to thank my single guest, Lux, for joining me today. Thanks for joining, Lux. Hey, no problem. Glad to do it. Yep, so check out Culture Binge on RSS. And until next time, oh, next week we're definitely doing the new Tarantino movie. We're going to be doing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood next week. Can't wait to see it. Really stoked. But until then, see you guys next time. Peace. Later.